Before starting this episode, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the University of New England sits today. And I would also like to pay my respects to elders past and present. Hello there, fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to a special series of the Nice Chats podcast from the Geology Podcast Network with Loon. I am Dr. B and in each of these episodes I will interview one of three researchers from Loon. And we will share with you a little bit of our knowledge and expertise in research of geosciences. Each of our episodes has a central theme and since us, the Loon folks, will walk you through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we will be talking about. As long as you are passionate about the study of geosciences, we will take care of feeding you all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. In this special episode of Nice Chats, we will talk with Dr. Marisa Betts about biostratigraphy. Marisa was invited by Donald Gennaro, Chief Counsel for InGen, to provide information on the requirements for care of infant dinosaurs. She was invited to tour the park, finding it difficult to turn down the request from a major financial donor. Unaware that John Hammond has cloned living dinos? Oh, wait, no, this is the plot to Jurassic Park. Oh, my bad. Uh, well, still within today's team. Marissa is actually a research fellow at the University of New England and is a member of the Litolab, or Loon for short. And she'll tell us what a real-life paleontologist does. Let's welcome her in. Hey Marissa, welcome to Nice Chats. Hey, thanks for having me. So Marissa, since you participated of the game from our inaugural episode of this uh, special series, you are well aware we like to kick things off with a little game. And today we will play my favorite ever game from Nice Chats. I'm your host, Dr. B, and welcome to the dating game. in today's game you will choose between three suitable bachelors and decide based on your affinity to each of them which of these indirect dating methods you should consider in the future <laughs> so the way this game works is we've asked uh, each of our three bachelors a series of questions and based on their answers you will pick which one of these dating methods is the right method for you. So the way we'll do that is that um, you'll pick your favorite response to each of the questions and then whichever methods has the most answers that you agree with, then that should be the dating method for you. Now keep in mind that these are three dating methods so their answer will somehow be correlated to what they actually are. So at the end, we'll, I'll give you a chance to try and guess what dating method 
uh, is behind each door uh, and we'll go from them. So keep that in mind uh, when, you're, when you're picking as well. Okay, all right. <laughs> the first question we asked of our contestants was, what is your favorite color? Bachelor number one has changed its favorite color a lot with the passing of the years. Right now it prefers beige, more specifically, 0 slash 5 slash 5 slash 0 now. What is that? Bachelor number two likes absolute black. It paid good money to get a piece of Venta black. It is almost as dark as space. And bachelor number three likes green or blue. Marisa, who do you think has the best answer and why? Um, I'm curious about bachelor number one. Mm, I like the sound of beige. <laughs> Next thing we asked our bachelor is, what is your perfect kind of date? So Marissa, you need to choose one of the following options. Bachelor number one would like to maybe go out for a walk, enjoy nature, maybe some bird watching. Bachelor number two said its perfect date would be pizza, soda, the moon, someone to share it with. And bachelor number three would take you sailing. It loves the ocean and it would like to share this passion with you. Which date would you like to go on? Well, the sailing does sound really nice. Um, being, uh, being in Armadale, we don't get to uh, go to the beach that often. So it would be really nice to go um, sailing, I think. So bachelor number three has piqued your interest, huh? <laughs> well, let's see what you choose next. Next, we asked our contestants, how are you? in the bedroom. <laughs> Bachelor number one might seem old-fashioned, but it is just a helpless romantic. Likes flower petals in the bedding and a romantic mood. Bachelor number two guarantees he will get you to see stars in the bedroom. <laughs> and bachelor number three will leave you gasping for air and saying, more oxygen, please. So Marissa, who do you pick? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a traditional woman, I think. So I think I'll go with bachelor number one. Well, bachelor number one takes the lead. Let's see what else they have to say. <laughs> so bachelors, how do you prefer to take the relationship? Well, bachelor number one like things to be out in the open. Let's set out the rules and follow them. We need to work together as a couple and reach decisions that we can agree on. Bachelor number two says, it just prefers to see how things go, but be sure you can count on it. And bachelor number three take things step by step, but it's searching for that special someone to make things stable and get to that happily ever after. Oh. I do think I like the sound of bachelor number one again, you know, good communication, keeping things in the open. Yeah. <laughs> well, bachelor number one, making a big impression on Dr. Marisa Betts. Mm -hmm. Well, this is something we've all had to deal with before 
Am I right, boys and girls? How would you deal with the dreadful conversation about past relationships? Well, bachelor number one wants to know everything. How many, in which locations, and for how long? It will dig up the truth. Bachelor number two says, we have all been impacted by past relationships and they're an important part of our story. Well, bachelor number three will not just scratch the surface, Nana, prepare for digging deep. I think bachelor number two sounds more um, pragmatic about this kind of thing. So yeah, I'm going to go with bachelor number two this time. Well, bachelor number two sounds smart. <laughs> Finally, we asked our bachelors to pick a verse from a song that represents them. That's right, folks. It is time to hear my beautiful singing voice again. If you're listening to this podcast on your earphones, be advised. <laughs> so, bachelor number one picked the following tune. Bachelor number two picked the following. Cause you got the night to light up the sky. Meteorite in front of every high. Mm-mm-mm. Mariah, the diva supreme. And finally, bachelor number three pick is... She got her own thing. That's why I love her, her. Missing the pendant. All right, Marissa, which song do you pick? Uh, fantastic singing, by the way, but I, I can't go past number one. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. How can I go past number one? Wonderful, wonderful. Of course you have to pick number one. It's the theme to Jurassic <laughs> Park. I mean, come on. <laughs> So, Marisa, you picked Bachelor number one's answer the most. So, it is the dating method for you. But let's sneak behind the doors and see what did you miss on. Yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me, yeah. All right, let's start with Bachelor number three. Bachelor number three, favorite color is green or blue. Bachelor number three thinks that... Sailing would be the best kind of date. It loves the ocean. Well, bachelor number three claims to leave you gasping for air in the, in the bedroom and saying, more oxygen, please, please more oxygen. Well, bachelor number three prefers to take the relationship th step by step, but it is searching for that special someone to make things stable. Uh, the way that bachelor number three would deal with conversation about past relationship would be to dig in deep. And then finally, bachelor's number, bachelor number three's favorite song is Neo's Miss Independent. Marisa, do you know what bachelor number three is? Uh, is it some kind, it's some kind of... Um stable isotope proxy 
I haven't, I haven't like nailed it completely. I know that's that's <laughs> pretty spot on. Uh, bachelor number three is marine isotope stages or MIS for short. Oh, MIS tracks alternating periods of warm and cold in Earth's paleoclimate from oxygen isotope data measured from deep sea samples. Woo! That's awesome. <laughs> Very clever clues. Let's see what uh, the answers were for bachelor number two. Bachelor number two's favorite color is black because it is almost as dark as space. Bachelor number two perfect kind of date would be an office classic. Pizza, soda, the moon, someone to share it with. Bachelor number two guarantees he will get you to see stars when in the bedroom. Bachelor number two prefer to just see how things go in the relationship, but it guarantees that you can count on it. Bachelor number two says we have all been impacted by past relationships and they are an important part of our story. And then finally, Bachelor number two's favorite song is Meteorite by Mariah Carey. Marisa, do you have a guess of who Bachelor number two is? Is Bachelor number two um, like cyclostratigraphy where they use like astronomically forced climate um, processes to, uh, for dating? <laughs> Marisa... I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh. Bachelor number two is crater counting. Oh. Crater counting is a method for estimating the age of a planet or moon surface. Oh, there you go. We both learned something today. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like, how do you decide the age of, you know, planets you can't visit? Yeah. Well, this is one of the ways. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. What a cool concept. It is a very controversial method. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Marisa, this is the method for you. This is the dating method for you. <laughs> bachelor number one. Do you know what bachelor number one is? Let's go I, through the answers yes. once, once again. So bachelor number one's favorite color is beige. More specifically, 0 slash 5 slash 5 slash 0 but it also has changed its favorite color with the passing of the years. Bachelor number one's perfect kind of date would be enjoy nature, maybe some bird watching. And then bachelor number one said in the bedroom it is a helpless romantic, likes flower petals in the bedding and the romantic mood. Uh, bachelor number one like things to be out in the open in a relationship. So, you know, set out the rules and follow them. Work together to reach decisions that we can all agree on. And then uh, about the conversations about past relationships, bachelor number one wants to know everything. Precise location, numbers and duration. It will dig up the truth. And then obviously, Bachelor number one's favorite song was the theme to Jurassic Park. Marisa, 
what is Bachelor number one? Um, I'm pretty sure Bachelor number one is biostratigraphy. Um, but yeah. A I match have... made in heaven. Biostratigraphy. And yeah. I don't even need to explain to our listeners what biostratigraphy <laughs> is because Marisa, you will do that right yeah. after this break and this message from our sponsors. <laughs> I think I have a future as a geochronology matchmaker, don't I? Go check out Loon's page and social medias that we have added to the show notes. And if you're thinking of studying geology, go and have a look at the resources from UNE and keep listening to these special episodes to find out more about the opportunities and cool advantages of Loon and New England. I know for a fact they are looking for more PhD students after they got a pretty nice grant over there. If you have ideas for future episodes or guests, please write to our email nicechats at gmail.com. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and give us a five-star review. Okay, so Marisa, uh, Without further ado, let's start by answering the question that we are all digging to know the answer to, shall we? What is biostratigraphy? Well, biostratigraphy is where we use fossils to constrain the ages of the rocks that they're found in. So um, evolution means that life on Earth has changed over time. And so we can use that sequence of fossils in sedimentary rocks to give us an indication of how old they are. It's, um, it's a kind, one of those relative dating approaches rather than absolute dating, which is when you can get those very precise um, ages on rocks, but that only really works for volcanics or plutonic rocks rather than the sedimentary rocks that you find fossils in. So, Marisa, how do you link biostratigraphy and other geochronological techniques, as you said, you know, the absolute dating techniques? Yeah, so in my work, I link the biostrat data with uh, chemostratigraphic data, but also those radiometric dates as well. So we like to call that the multi-proxy approach, uh, which basically means that, you know, the more evidence uh, you have, the better. Um, mm -hmm. I work in the Cambrian. And one of the drawbacks of this period is that the fossils um, can be very endemic, which means like they can be native to a particular area, only found in a restricted area. And so this means with biostratigraphy, it's really difficult to build one single global scheme. Um, and so we've ended up with lots of little regional schemes. And so that's where the chemostratigraphy comes in. So it's possible to use chemostratigraphy to link all of these regional timescales together. And we use uh, stable carbon isotope chemostratigraphy. The, the stable carbon isotopes are precipitated directly from seawater. Um, and because the oceans are relatively well mixed, um, it is possible to get global signals preserved in the rocks. Um, but of course, the biostrat and the chemostrat are not perfect. They're both uh, relative dating methods. So any kind of um, absolute date that we can get from a volcanic ash, for example, sandwiched in our sedimentary layers, 
uh, is really good because that gives us some really hard dates that we can um, uh, pin our scheme to the global scheme, the global timescale with. So yeah, that's the multi-proxy approach, combining all of those different things together. Okay, so uh, what techniques do you use in biostratigraphical studies? Well, our data is collected along measured stratigraphic sections uh, or from drill cores. So I work a lot in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia, for example, um, and in the Flinders Ranges, the Lower Cambrian rocks there uh, are really continuous. The succession is very continuous and also very thick. So we can um, measure some really reliable sections uh, without too much guesswork. So we can run a measuring tape out um, and uh, measure through basically continuous strata for up to two kilometers um, uh, without too much guesswork, which is amazing. And we use that tape to run out um, uh, perpendicular to the strike of the beds. Uh, we take dip and strike measurements on these beds so we can um, convert to true thickness later. And we basically go along that section and we collect samples at around every five to 10 meters. Um, you know, a couple of big potato sized samples. And at each horizon, we get a sample for fossils to extract the fossils out for biostratigraphy. But we also get um, at the same horizon, a sample for isotope collection. So those stable isotopes. And also a sample that's oriented with a way up to make a thin section out of. And so that's really important for us to quantify the rock type. So we can have a look at it under a microscope later, um, understand what the rock type is, what the depositional environment was, and then also to understand any kind of diagenetic processes that might've cooked up our rock and affected those, those isotope results. So um, those are the different techniques that we, we kind of combine together. And um, so why is it important to have the sample be oriented upward? Yeah, good question. So um, we're looking at sedimentary rocks and I want to know where the, the top of the sample is. So where the sediment mm -hmm. was being deposited on the top of the sample. I don't want to have it upside down, otherwise I'll interpret these structures um, incorrectly. So I need to know which way was up um, so I can understand the depositional environment. So from my question so far, uh, you probably got that I don't really know anything about paleontology, but look, don't hate, okay? <laughs> I'm a Precambrian boy. So how do you look for fossils? Uh, well, no worries at all, firstly. Um, you know, people do a lot of hunting in the Precambrian rocks for, for fossils and, and other evidence of early life. Um, but I am a Cambrian girl, of course. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I am really interested in that transition from the Precambrian to the Cambrian. It's uh, one of the, I reckon, one of the coolest times in the history of life on Earth to study. Yeah, so the second part of the question, how do you look for fossils? Um, sorry, can I stop? Can you hear the bird outside? Oh, good. Okay. It's very annoying. Um, yeah. Okay. So the second part of the question, how do you find them or how do you hunt for them? Um, well, when you're looking for fossils, it does kind of depend on what you're interested in. Um, and having a good understanding of the geology in an area is a really good start. So fossils um, tend to not be preserved in igneous rocks, for example. Uh, so um, if you look at your geological map and it tells you that you're standing in a huge granite, 
uh, then you're probably out of luck that day. But the flip side is as well that not all sedimentary rocks yield fossils. Um, marine rocks tend to be, um, have been more likely to yield fossils, but mostly because there just is more uh, marine sedimentary rocks uh, rather than terrestrial mm -hmm. rocks uh, preserved in the rock records. And um, when we're talking about sedimentary rock type, you can get fossils preserved in carbonates or limestones and also siliciclastics, but they are preserved in different ways. So in limestones, you can get a lot of like the shelly fossils with shelly parts like mollusks and corals and they can be preserved in three dimensions. In sandstones and mudstones, um, you can also get those 3D fossils, but they can be in uh, like casts and molds. So you get the impressions of what the external or internal textures were like. But also in the siliciclastics, you can get them pancaked uh, because of compaction. And so they become these just like flat films on the rock, on the bedding planes. Mm -hmm. And if you're really lucky, you can get the soft tissues fossilized as well, which is uh, really, really amazing. So, That's yeah. cool, yeah. I think we have um, a few of those uh, fossils that are really like, you know, preserved in, in this like kind of bubble of, I don't know, clay. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, we yeah. We have those in, uh, in northeastern Brazil. Oh, like uh, a concretion? Yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Do you like, is it like a ball and then you crack open the And then there's a fish in the middle, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing, Pretty isn't cool. it? cool, yeah. So uh, when I was an undergrad, I went to do some field work with, um, with a master's student and uh, to get some experience on field work. And I was like, at the time I was uh, amazed because he would just look out the window of the car, you know, into the horizon and be like, Oh, I, I think there's some outcrop over there. And then, you know, we it was a very flat area, so it's very hard to see where there is outcrop. And then we drive over there and sure enough, there was a little outcrop right wow. there. And, uh, and then I find, you know, with experience, I, I come to understand that he was just analyzing the, the relief and, you know, trying to go to like riverbeds or, you know, wherever the river would make a cut on the rock yeah. or wherever there would be. Uh, like on you know, a side of the road cut or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Do rock. you have strategies also to identify what are the best outcrops or, you know, what's the best uh, area within the outcrop to look for fossils? Yeah, absolutely. So actually you've just, you've caught us at a really good time. We're about to go and do field work next week in the Flinders Ranges. And so we've been looking at maps and working at the best spots to target because we're going to go to a, an area that we've not really looked at before. And so for us, because we're going to be measuring those stratigraphic sections, the, the best places for us to get good outcrop is usually in the creeks, like you said. So if we can find a creek that tends to cut across the strata so it, um, mm -hmm. we can intersect as many different types of um, uh, rock types as we can and different ages as we can. Yeah, the, the creeks tend, tend to cut through uh, the rocks for us so we don't have to do too much work. <laughs> <laughs> right. What, 
about uh, like is there a relation between having a bunch of fossils and you know a big um, how do you call them uh, extinction events yeah so the, I mean fossils are really important ways of understanding extinction events and biostratigraphy is actually one of those uh, techniques that people use to uh, understand how how fast an uh, uh, extinction event happened, what kinds of taxa it affected, and how how fast the recovery was after. And if you think about it, if you cross a boundary in the timescale where you're getting a, a big extinction event, you're going to want to sample pretty closely. <laughs> and if you sample, because uh, if you sample at very coarse intervals, you're not going to get as much information as you need to really understand what's happening in this event. So you need to um, uh, sample very closely, sometimes at centimetre scale, to understand um, how fast things are going extinct and what happens after. Because sometimes it might look like a sudden extinction event, but it's just because you haven't um, sampled properly. You know, so, oh, that's yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the Cambrian? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it such an important time in Earth's history? Um, why, do we, why do we always refer to, you know, everything that happened before it as pre-Cambrian, just clumping it up together? Yeah, I know. And it's like, that's billions and billions of years and we just call it pre-Cambrian. Um, yeah. True. Well, I mean, the early Cambrian is like life's big bang, right? They, they call it the Cambrian explosion of life. And... I guess the best way to understand how important it was is to kind of go back and look at um, what's happening in terms of the biosphere in the pre-Cambrian. I mean, we had microbes um, dominating life on Earth for literally billions of years uh, in the pre-Cambrian leading up to the Cambrian. Um, right underneath the boundary, um, the Cambrian boundary, we have an interval of time called the Ediacaran. And that's um, characterized by a group of fossils called the Ediacarans. And uh, they are soft-bodied things. Um, actually, they are, they're very difficult to interpret. They're found everywhere around the globe. Um, but they're soft-bodied and they're, um, people are not necessarily 100% certain whether they're actually related to, to, to animals that we know of today. Um, some of them might be, but... We don't really know for a lot of them. But in the, the early Cambrian, that's when we start to see the um, very sudden, geologically sudden appearance of, of complex animals in the fossil record. And it happens um, in a really short interval of time in the early Cambrian. So we go from soft body things, things that are essentially simple tubes, to bilaterally symmetrical animals with hard skeletons, with eyes. Um, we have the very first complex animal reefs being built by early sponges. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so we have basically the foundations for all of those complex animals and the complex ecosystems that we see today. So that's why the Cambrian is super cool. Uh, so Marisa, uh, the University of New England, uh, from what I've you know, seen and, uh, and read, is intimately connected with the idea of accessible education to all. Uh, from, 
from what I've researched, uh, it was the first regional university in Australia. And it's one of the most prominent institutions when it comes to studies by correspondence, which obviously now have evolved to online education, right? And it's more relevant than ever, I would say. Um, in the case of the Little Lab specifically, how do you try to match these university values and how important is it to you and to your group to promote accessible information and education? Yeah, I mean, super important. Like UNE is one of the foremost providers of higher, edu of higher education by distance in Australia. And the vast majority of our students are online. Um, and it's, it creates a really interesting, um, a very different dynamic to most normal, you know, on-campus universities. Um, you know, there are some disciplines that actually lend themselves quite well to online learning or distance learning. Uh, but with subjects like geoscience and paleoscience, you know, they're really hands-on subjects. So we have some quite important challenges to overcome when we deliver in this kind of a mode. Um, you know, as geologists, we know that things like field skills are really important. Um, and there are, like you would know yourself, that there are things in geology that are learned best by doing them, um, being in the field, touching samples, and not just reading about it or listening to a lecture. Um, so, you know, and our students understand that, uh, that and they really, they, they want those um, hands-on experiences, being in the lab and being in the field. Um, and connecting opportunities to connect with teachers and researchers. But the reality is that our students need flexibility um, in the, the mode of delivery. And that's, that's really what we do deliver. Um, and I think in geoscience here at UNE, we have got a really good balance um, of the online and face-to-face -face delivery. We have used the virtual field trips, especially since COVID. Um, but they're usually just sort of a backup or um, a preparation tool for the real thing, you know. Um, and normally if a student selects, they call it an external mode or online mode, they will have to come to campus um, at some point for what we call intensive periods. Um, and during those intensive periods, they get to tackle all that hands-on stuff, you know, go to the field, mm -hmm. do lab work, stuff like that. Um, and we also have units that actually are completed almost entirely in the field. Um, so those are really great options for our students as well. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of the field, you mentioned to me before that uh, one of the strengths of the University of New England, according to you, uh, might be geography. So what makes Loon's location ideal for learning and researching geology and paleontology? Oh yeah, well, I think that Armidale is, well, smack bang in the middle of what I like to call a geological playground. Um, <laughs> the, the rocks around here tell some really incredible stories about the evolution of Eastern Australia. Um, e Eastern Australia was progressively built out um, and experienced a huge variety of tectonic events and geologic events, um, stretching, squeezing, uh, subduction, volcanism, all this stuff, faulting, folding, 
that has uh, shaped the landscapes around here. Um, there are even rocks of Cambrian age around Tamworth. Um, uh. they're yeah, very special. They're classed in a conglomerate, but we have stuff all the way up to Miocene volcanics. So, you know, we've got almost half a billion years of geological history on our doorstep. And, you know, to be a student learning geology here, you'd, you'd be pretty spoiled. Um, like I got my degree from Macquarie in Sydney, which is great. But, you know, for field trips, we had to drive for ages to get out of the Sydney Basin. So, you know, the Sydney Basin is basically just all cross-bedded quartz sandstone with a few shales and stuff in it. So it's super boring, I think, unless you really love <laughs> sandstones, quartz sandstones. So we used to drive like six hours to get up to somewhere near Armadale um, to do our mapping trips and stuff like that because the rocks around here are just fabulous. So, yeah, we have, um, you know, the ideal outdoor classroom for teaching geology mm -hmm. and paleo here. Um, yeah, so we're talking about, you know, how important um, for the University of New England access to education and information is. What about um, science communication for Loon? You know, how important is science communication to you? And how do you try to make um, the scientific advancements that your group is uh, achieving um, reachable to the general public? How do you make the public aware of them? Yeah, so it, um, science communication to the general public is um, really important for us as a group. You know, we're a smaller department, so it's really, you know, paramount for us to get our name out there. Um, recently, I've been selected as a superstar of STEM. Um, and this is oh, a, wow. it's an Australian program. Yeah, it's cool. It's That's a program a great honor. designed to smash society's gender assumptions about who can work in STEM. Um, and it gives uh, women working in STEM all sorts of essential media skills and communication skills. So I've been um, busily absorbing of as much of that information as I can and applying it to Loon <laughs> so we can get as much traction with Loon as possible. Um, and so that's why um, we're doing this really exciting podcast series with you guys, um, which is super fun. And another thing that I've just started recently is a thing called Cyflix. Um, and okay. this is a thing where, you know, when you sort of get, um, stand around and have a chat and say, wouldn't that be fun? Like, isn't that a cool idea? And you're like, actually, that is a really good idea. I'm going to do it. And so, yeah. um, you know, there's all sorts of uh, movies with scientific themes, right? Like, and uh, we thought it would be really fun to sort of show some movies um, with scientific themes and have a researcher give a talk, um, you know, that if they work in a similar area, they can kind of myth bust some of the um, concepts in the film. Um, one of the classic ones that I really want to show is The Core. I don't know if you've ever seen The Core. Um, that's uh, yeah. Oh yeah, it's, it's the one like, that they they like go on a on a drill that is basically a, a submarine or something. Yeah, so you know, I think the concept is that um, for some reason the the Earth's core has stopped spinning, and so okay. the magnetic field has stopped. You know, and birds are falling out of the sky, and you know everything's just um, a disaster. And so that what they have to do is drill down to the the center of the Earth and set off. Um, an atomic bomb and start the core again um, and there's yeah like a jump start yeah sure yeah jump sense. start it um, mm -hmm. 
I remember having that it was actually an exercise in undergrad where we were made to watch the core and list as many incorrect um, concepts as we could possibly find in the film. And did um, you find any? My God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got a couple. Yeah, I got a couple. Um, and yeah, so we thought, oh, you know, this is kind of a fun idea. And um, in Armadale, it's a small town and the cinema in town is um, linked with the university. And I thought, oh, this would be great. So we got in contact with the cinema and I got in contact with a few people at the university. And now we're having um, monthly movie nights and to show a scientifically themed film and have a researcher mm -hmm. from UNE give a talk about their research and also do a bit of a Q&A about the, about the research afterwards um, or about the concepts in the film afterwards. And yeah, so we've got San Andreas coming up. Um, yeah, I'm super excited. And Luke Milan from Loon is going to be telling everybody about how amazing Loon is and his research and doing the, the Q&A after San Andreas. So super excited about that. <laughs> that's cool, that's cool. That's awesome. Um, okay, so I have one more question for you. And this one is something I picked up on one of our preparation meetings for mm -hmm. this episode. Uh, you guys were uh, bragging really about the Loon Lounge. What is the <laughs> Loon Lounge? Um, well, the Loon Lounge is a very cool, fresh little space that we've got here at the Earth Sciences Building at UNE. Um, I can paint a picture for you, you know, we've got a few comfy chairs, you know, nice uh, tables to sit at, a few juicy pot plants, you know, for a bit of um, atmosphere, shelves with journals on them. And of course, we have a huge whiteboard. Um, I love doing what I like to call whiteboard sessions. I don't know, do you do whiteboard sessions or mind mapping when you come up with ideas for papers and research and stuff like that? Uh, I don't use a little whiteboard, but uh, but yeah, sure. Like for example, even for the podcast, uh, we like to do brainstorming sessions. Yeah. For example, I love. I think you know, if you haven't used a literal whiteboard, like really, I, I recommend it. You know, it's super fun because everyone can get in there and have a pen and throw ideas down, and you can sort of rub stuff out and draw lines and. Um, connect ideas and things so you know the loon lounge is just a little place for us to get together and meet and and discuss sort of loon plans research plans activities we've got coming up and grants we want to write and everything so yeah it's it's a little special place just for us yeah that's great that uh, it's very useful um having this kind of uh easy communication environment uh you know we we obviously get a lot from um scientific conferences and more kind of you know q a more mm -hmm. like a, uh you know some informal uh, kinds of um yeah no but i'm talking about you know we obviously get a lot from the more you know strict strict q a's and more formal things but uh I think that informal settings are just as valuable, oh, yes. if not more, because exactly because, you know, let's assume that no idea is a stupid idea, you know, and there are like no dumb questions. So you actually learn so much um, because you don't feel threatened. You yeah. are not afraid to ask questions, you know, oh, you yeah, are for sure. bold enough to suggest your crazy theories. And, uh, you know, 
maybe they're actually not that crazy. You just, you know, you just don't have a lot of background or something. So we used to have us. Yeah. Also, I was going to say, I agree. Like the loon, the loon lounge is a safe space. You know, we, yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. We used to have that in, um, in Curtin with the Argon, uh, mm -hmm. group. And I was part of that group cause I did do some, uh, some Argon studies and man, I loved presenting to that group because I would bring a very crude, you know, interpretation of my results. And obviously people would point out, you know, the mistakes I made and I mm -hmm. would like not really care that much because I knew there were bound to be, you know, problems. But at the same time, people brought in so many good ideas that I hadn't considered. Yeah. And nobody's judging you because they're all aware that this is, you know, a work in progress. Yeah. And you're not, you know, presenting your final findings that you published in a paper or something like that. So, yeah, having this, uh, you know, uh, relaxed environment where you can just talk about anything you want. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, it's very valuable, I think. It is really valuable. And I think for us as well, like, you know, we want to see each other succeed. So um, it is a good place for people to sort of be like, oh, look, you might want to think about this or I don't know quite about, about that. You know, I, I agree with you completely. It's, it's a wonderful thing um, to have one of those spaces and to encourage that kind of culture as well. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think that there are some places where there just seems to be an ingrained culture of... Um, being quite uptight and maybe protective of your research and not very open. And um, mm -hmm. that's not really the vibe we're going for here at Loon. Um, and the Loon Lounge is a big part of that. Yeah, that's it. The Loon, the Loon Lounge is just a, a physical expression of the culture, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For our next segment, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. And these are questions that are a bit more personal and they are designed to make each guest even more familiar to the listener. Uh, they also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. And the first question is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? Oh, well, um, I have had a bit of a, um, you know, strange journey into geoscience. That's, I never really did science at school, not seriously anyway. Um, and straight after school, I did visual arts um, <laughs> and a lot of design and photography and drawing and those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, but I studied it for like a year and a half at university and it just wasn't for me really and so I um I quit and I went traveling and I realized when I was traveling um I was living in uh, Ireland for a while and then also in the UK um and yeah I was going to museums a lot and I just realized that I loved the natural history side of museums and I wanted to get into that and so when I came back to Australia I enrolled at Macquarie at um in a museum studies degree and that was a double degree, so you had to try lots of different things, which I think was fantastic because it gave me a taste of lots of different stuff. And mm -hmm. as soon as I did a few geology subjects, I was like, man, like rocks are amazing. Like <laughs> the, the rocks really spoke to me. And um, 
yeah, I don't know what it was. I was just like, you know, I just felt at home. And maybe it was as well, like the kinds of people that you meet doing geology, like they seem to be like my people as well. We always ended yeah. up, you know, hanging out or going to the pub and um, doing field work together was really great to bond us. Like we're, I'm still mates with some of the people that I did my first year mapping field trip with. Um, we still like to go and do like our own sort of pretend field trips. Uh, that was like mm -hmm. 10, over 10 years ago that we did all our um, first year stuff. Um, and yeah, so I, I did, I finished in geology um, and I thought I was going to go into the mines and make heaps of money in the mines. <laughs> right. But there was a mining crash because the industry is uh, quite boom and bust. And they were like, no jobs. And um, I really enjoyed uh, my paleo subjects. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll carry on with that. I really loved it. So I did my honours in paleontology um, with Professor Glenn Brock at Macquarie University. And the um, it was a great success, the honours. I, I loved it. And it, it went really well. And so off the back of that, I started my PhD. Mm. Uh, so we went into a little bit of details about the second question, but... What are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? Um, yeah, good question. I'm, <laughs> I'm juggling a bunch of different projects at the moment. Um, pretty much all of them Cambrian related. I'm working on uh, the chronostratigraphic stuff in the Flinders Ranges at the moment. I have some students starting as well. So we're going to be tackling a few specific projects with them. Another thing that I've got going on is I'm working with a team um, in Mongolia. So we're, do, we're measuring sections through the uh, pre-Cambrian, Cambrian boundary in Mongolia, probably one of the uh, best preserved, most complete um, sections across the boundary um, in the world. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we're looking at the biostratigraphy and basically applying that multi-proxy approach um, to these sections that haven't necessarily been looked at in, in that much detail or the kinds of um, approaches that we're, or methods that we're using. Um, so yeah, that's that's taking up uh, a lot of my research time at the moment. Um, the rest of my time is basically spent teaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, what do you enjoy doing when you're not geosciencing? Oh, well, um, I haven't had heaps of time to do it uh, in the last few months, but I am a member of the Armadale Pottery Club. And um, I think it's kind of, a, it's a throwback to my sort of uh, visual arts roots. I never did mm -hmm. heaps of ceramics when I was doing visual arts ages ago. But, you know, as a geologist or a geoscientist, ceramics makes a lot of sense to me because you know all these are products from the earth and mm -hmm. um, the clay itself of course but also the glazes that you use the different minerals as kaolinite and feldspars and um, all sorts of other different kinds of minerals that you can mix together or crushed up rocks i've been making my own glazes out of uh, rocks that are um, locally found around armadale and mm -hmm. um, having um yeah uh variable success i would say <laughs> basalts <laughs> basalts look pretty but they don't necessarily stick to the pot um mm -hmm. the rhyolite though there's a rhyolite um not far out of town that has made a really pretty blue green kind of a glaze um mm -hmm. so yeah i'm gonna keep i'm gonna keep working on those uh rock glazes they're it's a very fun project 
So that's what I like. Do you have um, a place where you share the projects with people or not really? Like, you um, know, a social media platform or something? Oh, sometimes I post um, pictures of the, the more successful um, products that I make on my Instagram or something like that. Um, I've sold mm -hmm. some of my work at the, they do some of the, um, they do a, a sale once a year around Christmas time. Um, and yeah. it's a good opportunity for me to get rid of all of the like crazy pots that I've experimented with and I don't really need to keep uh -huh. in my house. Um, yeah. yeah. Or I give them as gifts. <laughs> That's good. So Marisa, thank you so much for teaching me about biostatigraphy. I hope that our listeners also learned something. I, I've never, you know, uh, hidden the fact that uh, it's always been an issue for me. Uh, but I think, I think I'm a little bit more knowledgeable now. <laughs> Fantastic. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks again. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, showing us uh, all the great things that are happening at Loon as well. Uh, it seems to me like, uh, like a great, great environment. And I'm happy that I've, uh, our paths have crossed. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much for having us um, for this series. It's really fantastic uh, to tell everybody about the research that we're doing here, but also about how, um, how cool Loon is and studying geoscience at UNE is. Um, thanks very much. Nice Chats is part of the Geology Podcast Network and it is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. This special series is sponsored by the University of New England and it is produced in partnership with the Lito Lab of UNE. Follow Traveling Geologists on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologists.com or wherever you get your podcasts, which includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify... In the next episode, me and Silvia will talk uh, with a great friend of ours about a topic that we both love. Uh, so tune in for that. And to close off this series in the best way possible, I'm going to quote one of the greats, Mr. Michael Scott. That's what Schist said. See ya. This so is clever. like the definition of a rigged game. That was so Thank clever. You. The way that oh, there's so many different questions, and they were so I would never have been able to think of any of those things. Like I, I take my hat off. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's my, Must have my, taken I, you I, ages. I would, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it took like a day to do it. To be honest. <laughs> ah. um, it's like the the. The most important part is the first, uh, like just the first concept. Mm -hmm. And then you just like, you know, search for things that can fit in, you know? Yeah. So yeah. like the skeleton is the biggest uh, thing to get yep. done. And, and then, then you, you just, just like, you know, shove up things. Yeah. It's, it's my favorite part coming up with the games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>